Hey all. Hey all. Huh. Weird way to address people, but thank you as always for listening. Um, again, go check out makingthebrand.co if you get the chance. All the episodes are up there. Share it. Talk about it. Talk about it constantly. Um, I wanted to call out the fact that we had a few technical issues uh, on this episode towards the end. I dubbed a few of them, but there were a few sort of audio glitches uh, on my vocals. Um, Dave uh, from Grady's Cold Brew, who's on this episode, sounded great through and through. I just had a few issues with my microphone uh, or with the connection. I don't know what it was. But anyway, um, just don't disappear. There are just a few glitches and you might not even notice. You know, I, I, as an adult, planned to go broke. And I had my money saved up, and I knew that we weren't going to pay ourselves for, you know, two years. And so, you know, every piece of gum that I bought was just money out the door. Welcome, everybody, to the Making the Brand podcast. My name is Billy Draper. I'm a venture capitalist at Draper Associates. But on this show, we're going to be talking about brands. We'll talk to founders and leaders of growing consumer companies that are finding ways to stand out, differentiate, and delight their customers. On today's show, we have Dave Sands, co-founder of Grady's Cold Brew. He teaches us about bootstrapping his business and creating an entirely new category. So today on the show, we have a very special guest, uh, Dave Sands, the co-founder of Grady's Cold Brew. Um, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, pleasure's all mine, Billy. Thanks for inviting us on. So to start off, what is Grady's Cold Brew? Uh, so Grady's Cold Brew is a New Orleans-style coffee concentrate. Um, we brew and bottle everything up in Initially a brewery in Brooklyn, but now we're we're situated in the Bronx due to uh, real estate prices. We got a, a pretty amazing deal in a place up in the Bronx that year one of our lease there uh, was probably 40% below the going rate in Brooklyn. And year 15 of the lease was still lower than year one of most leases we were getting offered in Brooklyn. So we are happy to be up in the Bronx. Um, but so basically what we do is we make... Uh, bottles of cold brew coffee. Um, you've probably seen it on the shelf. We're now kind of carried coast to coast with uh, with different retailers. Um, but really, the the whole point of the coffee is that we're trying to make a delicious cold brew coffee that you can keep in your fridge, at your home, or at your office. So every time you want a cup, instead of having to go to a store, you can just go to your fridge and make it yourself. And how did you end up in the coffee business? Uh, really by chance. Um, so I, you know, when I graduated college, I moved to New York city. And so I had what most people who know me now and have known me over the years, everyone would agree was kind of a curious job, uh, which was, I was managing a sales team for Xerox. And so wore a suit reported to 47th and park every day. Um, and so after, you know, five years of doing that, um, the way I would describe it was that it was a good, well-paying, easy job if you're good at a, a sales job, but not exactly the sexiest job to be 27 years old and you know going to a fun party in Brooklyn and people ask what you do and it's just like, uh, what do you do? Let's talk about what you do. And so I had befriended Grady from now Grady's Cool Brew uh, several years prior. He was working at GQ Magazine with, with one of my best friends growing up, uh, Eric Davidson. And so we kind of had a, a budding friendship over the years, and he was always slanted as a more of a foodie than I was. And so we had kind of a funny, I describe it as like a Dharma and Greg relationship, if anyone remembers that show. Um, but he would kind of, you know, we meet up for, for beers after work, and, you know, he'd come in dressed very cool from GQ, and I'd have my suit on, and he'd very passionately launch into a story about how he wanted to start a kebab truck or a falafel shop. and. I'd kind of sit there with one eyebrow raised and just be like, I don't know, man, you got a pretty good job at GQ. I don't really, don't really know why you want to end up working on a kebab truck. 
uh, indefinitely. And so one night we were talking about cold brew coffee. Um, we'd seen an article in, in GQ the month prior. And so Grady made a, a small batch in a French press and gave it to me in a Poland spring bottle. And I woke up the next day and looked in my fridge and kind of forgot that I even had it there, but just put some ice in a cup, filled it up, drank it, and realized that I was probably never going to go to a, a coffee shop again unless I was in a pinch. And so shot him a text and said, you know, I think that that I can moonlight doing this, uh, you know, having an outside sales job, I wasn't really required to be anywhere nine to five. And so that kind of started a, a nights and weekends thing for around six months before we both went full time. And what was the transition between the the part time and full time? What, what was the the catalyst that got you to quit and sort of take this on as a as a real career? I think it was probably the need for sleep because, you know, basically what we would do is, you know, I'd wake up, put a suit on, go to Midtown, have some meetings, catch up with everybody, uh, bomb back to Brooklyn, take the suit off, either go out and try to win new accounts um, or help make the coffee or assemble boxes or kind of whatever we were doing that day. And then put the suit back on, go back to Midtown at the end of the day, catch up with everybody and you know, thankfully, we were effective in our job in that, you know, if you're hitting your sales numbers, no one really pays attention to where you are. And so after, you know, six months of doing that, um, I had set up, you know, it was important for us to get a good anchor account. And so we had knocked off a bunch of mom and pop shops all through Brooklyn and Manhattan. But, you know, places that carried a really heavy rep within that city. But if you try to bring it up to someone who's outside the geography, no one had ever heard of it before. So at that point, uh, the goal was to try to get into Whole Foods. And so I set up meetings with uh, the specialty food buyer for every Whole Foods in the geography. And I took a week off of work and I went into every one of the stores, met with them personally, explained the product, did a sampling, and thankfully, uh, it seemed like everyone really loved it. And so I gave them the name of the coffee buyer who was, you know, rightfully ignoring my emails because it was a brand new category. No one had really heard of it before. No one had heard of our company before. And so at the end of those meetings, I just kind of impressed upon the buyers that, hey, if you guys want this product, I, I really need you to email this woman. I need you to do it today because I'm trying to flood her inbox with product requests for this product so she has no choice uh, but to at least address it. And so thankfully, by the Wednesday of that week, um, we got uh, an email back from her and she said something funny, like quite effective little blitz that you just put on my stores, but it does seem like everyone really loves the product. So why don't you ship some over? So we sent it over and then, uh, you know, uh, because of course something happened where she was leaving the country for like three weeks. So after we shipped it, it was just kind of a, a three week waiting time of biting your nails and hoping that she liked it. And then she got back and she said she loved it. And she sent over the, the new item forms and, and told us to get set up. And so I looked at Grady and hung up and I was like, man, I think that we just got into Whole Foods. And he kind of looked at me from across the room because, you know, I don't really know if he knew uh, how deep my scheme had gone with trying to get all these people on board. And he was like, wow, how'd that happen? And then about 20 minutes later, the show 30 Rock called us, which is uh, a place that we had been delivering coffee to the set for a while. And they had just kind of a, a vague question about if we could rush over to the set and deliver any bottles or branding or signage that we had. And so I asked them why. And they told us that they were going to shoot a coffee shop scene and they were going to make it a Grady's Colbert coffee shop for us. And so then I hung up the phone with the Grady and I was like, all right, we got to go to, we got to go to 30 Rock and drop off a bunch of stuff. And so pretty much within the span of 24 hours, it was clear that we both had to go full time. And so, you know, Grady was already freelancing at GQ at that point. So he basically just scaled his hours back to none. And then I had to stick around for another couple weeks because I had a, a quarterly bonus that I needed because I knew we weren't going to pay each other or ourselves, I should say, for the first 18, 24 months into the business. So I needed to accrue as much savings as possible. But basically the, the day I got my bonus check was my last day there. Do you remember roughly what your sales were at the time when you left your jobs? $2,100 a month. 
Not bad. Yeah, Not bad for six months in. It was pretty impressive. I just, you know, that those are the kind of things that, you know, it's thankfully I don't have, you know, like military parents or, you know, helicopter parents. They they understood uh, the vision that we had for it. And while it's tough to explain that our revenue couldn't even cover our personal rent, let alone, you know, supplies, rent on a facility, all that kind of stuff. I think they I think they understood that the category had a lot of room to grow. And if we did it correctly, that, you know, hopefully I wouldn't be uh, on the side of the road in two years. What was the experience like going to 30 Rock while while they were shooting? Or did you just sort of do it before they were shooting and deliver it and leave? Did you get to meet any of the cast or was any good stories out of that? Not with 30 Rock. I mean, that was, uh, you know, you'd be kicking around the set. And, you know, we thankfully have had a lot of opportunities in like that kind of world where you'll get invited on set for, you know, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt or, you know, photo shoot at milk studios or something like that. And so, you know, those are always uh, pretty interesting because you get to see people interact with your product. And oftentimes they don't know that you standing there are the, the owner of it. And so it's good to, to see these people who, you know, probably are exposed to a lot of, you know, great products, usually free, um, interacting with the product and loving it. And, you know, I will say that when we first started, we did a food fair, a really uh, prominent food fair in Brooklyn called Smorgasburg. And, you know, it's a little different when you're handing out these samples of, of coffee to your friends and family. And you don't really know if they're just, you know, shining you on and, you know, they don't want to rain on the parade of your your small business. So you go to a food fair like that where you're handing out, you know, thousands of cups a day to complete strangers in New York and they have no problem giving you real time feedback. And I think that's what made us the most bullish about the company was the fact that, you know, for the most part, people loved it. And, you know, you'd get the occasional person who would, you know, come over at nine 30 in the morning and they'd ask for a coffee and you'd say, do you want that with milk or almond milk? And they'd look at you and say, I thought it was beer. And you'd look at them and be like, well, it's nine 30 in the morning. So what comes next? Uh, but for the most part, people loved it. And that was another thing too, is that we, you know, we really wanted to make a product that stood on its own without needing to add a lot of, you know, sugar or sweetness or, you know, things that really would mask a, a bad taste of the coffee. And so one of the things that we did a lot was, you know, people just instinctively go to grab the sugar if they're getting a coffee and I don't know if it was just the fact that it was us standing there staring in their soul or what, but we would always just say, hey, if you want to add it, you know, go for it. But why don't you give it a whirl without adding any sugar first? You might find you don't need it. And I would guess, you know, 90% of the time uh, folks would try it and say, wow, you're right. I actually don't need sugar. And this is the first time in my life I've said that. And so, you know, those little clues, um, I think, actually played a, a pretty big role in our, our willingness to go full time and, and really go for it. How do you take yours? I just drink it straight black. Um, I think people think that I just like swim in a vat of cold brew every day. But, you know, I do kind of pay attention to what I eat and I understand how caffeine works. So I usually have my first cup like an hour after I wake up kind of as my fight or flight senses have settled down and I'm realizing that I'm tired. So usually I have a cup in the morning, then one after lunch, and then usually just a, a cup right before I work out at night. But straight black, on the weekends, I'll put in a good silver tequila. Um, I know it sounds a little bit gross, but it's kind of almost like a Cafe Patron minus the, the chemicals. Uh, black, like no ice? Oh, I put ice in there. I'm not Okay, good. Yeah, you're not a serial killer. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's funny, though, because I remember, so the first... Uh, the first office account that we landed was Tumblr. And so we would go in there and we would deliver bottles, uh, you know, once or twice a week, depending on basically how much room they could have in the fridge for it. And I remember, you know, maybe the third or fourth time walking out of there and there was a guy sitting there with one of our big 32 ounce growlers with a straw sticking out of it, just typing code, drinking from the bottle. And I left and I called Grady immediately and I was like, Hey man, I need to talk to the insurance guy. I want to figure out what happens if someone drinks like an entire bottle of this. So we called the insurance guy and he was like, no, it's clearly labeled that it makes eight cups. It's coffee. Everyone knows the deal. I was like, okay, all right. But I need that in writing. I want, I want you to remember this conversation. Yeah. For, for the listeners that don't know. So Grady's core product is, is a two X coffee concentrate. So basically 
if you're drinking it, it's equivalent, a cup of Grady's is equivalent to two cups of coffee. So this guy was getting real juiced up uh, while coding, probably hyper effective, at least for a few hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, though, is, you know, we would like I always joked that when we started, it was kind of like being a club promoter for Grady's Cold Brew, where we would make the coffee all day and deliver it to the stores. But then, you know, you'd go out at night and if I met someone and they had the unfortunate instance of having to talk to me for a minute, I probably grabbed their business card and invited myself into their office at some point in the next week or two. And, you know, you're going in there and you're pitching the coffee to 80 people. But the first thing I would always say is, all right, so what's Grady's Cold Brew? You know, we make a New Orleans style coffee concentrate. And then the last thing I'd always say is, but seriously, it's concentrate. So just dilute it with a little bit of water. You'll feel better. And I would always get the same text from whoever invited me in a couple hours later, just being like, dude, we just had the best three hours this office has ever had. And now people are like itching their forearms and asking where we can get more. (laughs) That was, you know, that the office sales were always kind of, I always found those to be a little bit of a thrill because it's, it's such an easy thing and it makes everyone happy because you go in there and you're pitching to an office manager and you're like, look, man, you know, carry it as a summer perk. Um, keep the office happy. If you have this on tap or if you have the bottles in here, people are going to be pretty thrilled that they have, you know, their favorite cold brew coffee sitting right here in their office. But from your perspective, they're also not running out to get nice coffee every two hours and taking 20 minutes off of work. And so, you know, I always looked at coffee as, you know, people, I think, think that Grady and I were much bigger coffee people than we were before. And I think that we were just people who adored good products. And so, you know, I can completely understand the coffee occasion of going to a coffee shop, catching up with a friend, escaping your boss, whatever it might be. But when I looked at it, that other 90% of my coffee, uh, you know, occurrences were to get caffeine in my body. And so having it, you know, in your fridge at your home or at your office would just make that so much more convenient than taking an elevator down, waiting in line, talking to a barista, and then you still have to go add, you know, the almond milk or whatever after the event. Have you thought at all about getting into the into the brick and mortar business, sort of being able to control the entire customer experience? Yeah, you know, we've thought about it. And I think that we actually have, you know, really good ideas of, of what a you know, pretty tight little Grady's coffee shop would look like. And, you know, that's one of the challenges that I think we have is just that when you look at our competitive landscape, a lot of our competitors started in that retail space. So, you know, they're easy to um, communicate kind of the story and the brand ethos and stuff because you can walk into the shop and you can experience it. Whereas, you know, we kind of start with, you know, having really catchy branding and then thankfully, we find that what's in the bottle, uh, people love and we have you know good repurchase rates and data to prove that. So I think that down the line, having a, you know, a Grady's pop-up shop in you know, some of the more influential areas, whether it was you know, Williamsburg or Silver Lake or something like that, would be great. But the realities of the situation is that in the meantime, we're still a manufacturing company that's manufacturing these products. And so um, you know, we got to kind of not get you know, too spider webbed in our ambitions. Cause you know, even if you look at what we've done with our product line, we've got a pretty wide variety of products. And so it's really more about focusing on, you know, all the foundation that we've built before we, we dip into any sort of a retail play. So um, something you alluded to is, is the user education factor um, of your, of your flagship product, which is the concentrate you were dealing with, a a new form of drinking coffee there wasn't you know you can't just pull it off the shelf you can't just uh sort of get it from the tap um or buy it at the coffee shop you have to uh buy it out of the bottle that you're going to store in your fridge and mix it with either ice or water or milk how did you deal with uh on a broader scale i know there were the the cases where you could go and talk to an office or go uh and talk to 30 rock but how did you deal on a larger scale with the user education element you know, besides just freaking out with the insurance company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's an ongoing thing. You know, thankfully, uh, over the past, you know, six, seven years since we started, uh, the market has grown a lot. And I think that was also a good kind of 
learning experience that I should talk about is just, you know, when we started, uh, you know, we came up with a very recognizable branding. We picked a, a pretty cool bottle. And as more and more regional players started to pop up, uh, more and more people were gravitating towards, I would say, taking design cues from us. And so, you know, we'd see these people pop up and we'd kind of stomp our feet and get mad and be like, oh, all these people are ripping us off. But then it really was a rising tide raises all ships moment where, you know, when we first started, when I'm begging these shops to carry us, they're putting it, you know, where the olives are or next to the cakes, just anywhere they can find refrigeration. And now you go into these stores and the cold brew set, you know, sometimes it's its own set. Oftentimes it's a functional beverage set. So it's going to be cold brews and kombuchas and switchel and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it was the consumer demand was there. And so, you know, the competitors coming to market actually helped everyone. And a similar thing is happening with our beanbag products. So for the listeners, we have a, another product line called beanbags. Um, you can almost think of a, a large tea bag with the same coffee blend that we use to make Grady's. And so the way that works is you just soak that in water overnight, pull the bags out the next morning and you have fresh cold brew. And so, you know, we came out with those and we really wanted to shake up the dry coffee aisle because there hadn't been, you know, much activity there aside from Keurig. And so we launched those a few years ago. And now some of the really bigger players like Starbucks and Dunkin's and those guys have come out with their own versions of it. And so that's when we had to stop and be like, all right, we've already done this dance before. This is going to be good for everybody. Um, I don't think it hurt. You know, like when Starbucks launched cold brew, I got a, a bunch of text messages from you know friends and family asking what we thought about it. And from my perspective, it was the best thing that could have happened to the category because, you know, we don't have that unlimited marketing budget to kind of spread the spread the gospel of cold brew. And so if those guys want to do it, um, that's great because that doesn't really was better tasting, more convenient, less expensive. And so when you look at customer education, you know, you I always or I try to do a thought exercise of being like, all right, so obviously when people are talking to me about cold brew or Grady's in general, you know, it's kind of with rose colored glasses on because they don't want to offend me. So I always wonder what would they say after they had a few beers. And so I think that a lot of times they would say, oh, it's delicious, but it's too expensive. And that's because you're looking at a, you know, a buying occasion where you're buying something that's $9.99 to say $11.99 on the shelf. It's then you sit there and, you know, thankfully we've done this enough that we're good at objection handling. And you just have to remind them that, okay, totally get it. Buying something that's $10 at a grocery store is expensive. But uh, are you going to drink eight iced coffees in the next week? Probably. Are they all going to be four bucks a pop? And then you're going to throw your change in the tip jar? Probably. So you're most likely going to spend between 32 and $40 this week on iced coffee. So while the upfront cost might be a little jarring, it's probably the best deal in town. Um, and then the next thing that we kind of run into, and you know, this is a byproduct of when we came into the category, is we went so heavily focused on the cold brew with our branding. If you look at our bottle, uh, the listeners have never seen it before, it's it's got a really poppy uh, kind of retro branding on it. And, you know, you can't miss it. It says cold brew in huge letters. And then above it in cursive font, it says Grady's. And so oftentimes what will happen, I just learned my lesson and we put the photo of our bottle on the back of our business cards because people would say, oh, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, you know, I started a company called Grady's Cold Brew with my buddies. And they'd say, oh, I don't know if I know that one. And then you pull your business card out and just point at it. And you're like, oh, it's this one. And they'll oftentimes say, oh, that's that's the one that's been in my fridge for five years. And so that's kind of one of the tricky marketing uh, problems that we have is that it's so recognizable to the eye, but is the name Grady's carrying over uh, into people's brain. And so we released a, a ready to drink called the Little Easy, um, a play on the Big Easy because we make normal style coffee. And so in this round, we really emphasize the Grady's versus the cold brew because the fear is that almost the branding will will start to look like it says craft beer on the bottle. You know, it's almost just saying the category that it's in. So, right. A couple of customer education. I mean, and then when you talk about the beanbags, that one's funny because, you know, the beanbags sell really well online. And part of the reason that we came up with that was just shipping these heavy glass refrigerated bottles uh, while a revenue driver was just kind of a nightmare. And I think UPS kind of hated us. 
And so we switched over to the beanbags. And so when you have someone's attention and you can really explain how the product works, um, we get a lot of uh, recurring customers on a subscription program. We just have really good repurchase rates with the product. But that's kind of the beauty of, you know, moving those kind of sales uh, and really targeting online is that, you know, you're convincing people who have maybe never really interacted with the category of cold brew before. You're convincing them to make it themselves, make it in bulk, plan ahead a little bit because you do have to soak it overnight um, and then, you know, repurchase the product and then also tell a friend about it. And so... Thankfully, as these bigger players have come into the market, it's not just us punching up at the competition and hoping that people figure it out. Thankfully, the, the whole category itself is, is doing a really good job of explaining its benefits to the customers. You mentioned some pushback on price. Uh, you were essentially developing a category, uh, cold brew. You were, if not the first, among the first. How did you decide how to price the bottle? You know, you could essentially choose your own price. How did you decide on, on how to price it? Uh, don't tell our business school uh, professors this, but we basically just, we looked at, you know, what would it cost to get this on the open market and what could we ask for this that's still reasonable. And so doing that math of, you know, eight cups of coffee is usually going to cost you between 32 and 40 bucks. Um, When we first started at Smorgasburg, which is the food fair, which mind you is also kind of an artisan food fair. So people are, are used to buying things at a little bit more of a premium. We were charging $15 for the bottles. And, uh, you know, so obviously as we've grown in scale and also, I mean, that was a byproduct of the fact that it's, we're buying coffee at the worst prices. We're buying bottles at the worst prices, caps at the worst prices, everything. We know economies of scale whatsoever at that point. And so that's what we had to charge to, to basically break even and, and make it worthwhile. Um, I think, eventually the category will settle around you know 9.99 for the 32 ounce bottle that we have but you know i think that when you look at the category itself you know it's it's kind of an interesting time within it where there's you know there's certainly competitors bars that i adore and i respect who i think you know hand make a really quality product But there's also just some other people out there who seem to be really riding the wave of the word cold brew. And so, you know, there's no like governing body that's out there telling people, you know, this is an authentic cold brew and this is not. And so I don't think we're really in a rush to, to the bottom in terms of price. I think that people will always, you know, there's always going to be a market for a luxury product. It's kind of a, a Lexus Toyota thing. And so that's why we resisted the urge to put it in a plastic bottle or, you know, make it with a co-packer who's going to boil our coffee down to the the essences and the the flavor notes and the scent notes of Grady's, but it's not going to be Grady's. And so, you know, we we're pretty honest about when we first started, when we really had to scale up quickly, we, you know, we went around, we met with co-packers, we met with Tetra, we tried to to find people who could do this for us on scale. Um, but the problem was that, you know, it kind of looked like Grady's and it kind of smelled like Grady's, but the mouthfeel was very sterile. Um, it just didn't, it, it just didn't represent it. And, you know, Grady's name's on the bottle and everyone knows that my entire life is built into this company. So we just couldn't bring that product to market. And so, you know, thankfully we were, our, our initial brewery which is in Williamsburg was about two blocks down the road from Brooklyn Brewery and so we worked out a pretty pretty great trading beer for coffee deal with those guys and along the way got a lot of really great advice from Eric Ottaway the the president over there and you know I think that looking at what those guys did and the model that they did and their commitment to to quality and their commitment to staying in New York um, that was when we just said, all right, let's go get some loans. Let's go get some equipment. We're going to do this ourselves because, you know, we can't, we can't start and build up our reputation on this really high quality product and then put a lower quality product out in the market. You mentioned a loan. How did you fund the business early on? Or did you, you know, did you bootstrap it? Did you raise outside capital? Um, have you bootstrapped it up to this point? Sort of how has the funding gone? So we started off with just some seed money, some friends and family, some angel investors. Um, you know, one of the things that, 
you know, we talk to people and oftentimes it's, you know, different accountants, whoever we meet are pretty floored. The, the feedback that we usually get is they've rarely seen uh, such an efficient, such a lean manufacturing company. And so, I mean, I think that the, the fact that when we started, we were so frugal and we were so cautious about our spending meant that we had to really make sure that we had a product that could carry itself on the shelf. Meaning, okay, you did you know $5 million of sales, but your promo spend was $2.8 million. Is that really good? Probably not. And so we wanted to make sure that we had a product that could carry itself on the shelf. And you know, as we were maturing and we would be able to start you know, doing advertising and paying for promos and stuff like that, that's great. But at the end of the day, you just want to make sure something can, can carry itself. And so we took basically right at the two-year mark, um, and that's actually a funny story. I won't name the company, but there was a company that wanted us to do a commercial for them for small business uh, financial product that they sold, but wouldn't give us the financial product because we didn't have two years financials, which is just an amazing thing. Um, that's funny. Yeah. But so uh, we got an SBA loan. Um, two years into the business, uh, and that's what financed uh, primarily equipment with a little bit of working cap, but primarily equipment, and then went back to the same lender uh, later that year and because we were building out the place in the Bronx. And so we did uh, a little bit more uh, with those guys, finished off the Bronx. Um, and then right now we're, you know, we're kind of in the middle of uh, doing a fundraise right now. And so from my perspective, uh, you know, because Grady's really uh, always focused on new products and production, and I mean, he's a he's a mastermind at it. But I think that me and the people who are on, you know, kind of the sales and the brand building side are excited about this round that we're doing now because it's going to be the first time that any money that we take in isn't immediately going to be earmarked to buy a new bottling line or install a freight elevator. It's going to be money that go towards revenue driving products and projects, I should say. Um, so it's an exciting time for sure to uh to a be around for still six and a half seven years later and be being able to you know way i describe it is we kind of have the pins lined up and we're just looking to uh throw a little fuel in the fire and knock them down and how big is the company now how many people and and sort of where are you based so the company is based in the bronx uh we have 24 employees at this point and i personally am based out in sunny Los Angeles now. Uh, I moved out here in January. Um, but yeah, we've got 24 people on staff now, and that ranges from uh, operations and upper management uh, to people who you know, are, are driving our trucks or working on the bottling lines. So um, it's a fun place to work. We've got a good team. And uh, you know, we try to, try to keep the fun environment and try to keep you know, barbecues and basketball games and all that kind of stuff going to, to make sure people are enjoying their time. So do you have to Skype in to get buckets? I, uh, do I, yeah, I, I Skype in and I, I basically, I'm like Cyrano de Bergerac. I put a, uh, an earplug in the best player and I just tell him to turn around and shoot the J. <laughs> shoot it. Shoot it. Uh, and what does your day to day look like now from Los Angeles? I mean, it's certainly different, uh, in that. I no longer, uh, wake up and face the New York city subway, uh, which I, I do miss it. I will admit, I kind of miss it masochistically. Um, but you know, I think that it's because we're so geographically spread out. Um, I've been traveling just nonstop. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of week to week, very dependent. So some days it's, you know, got to go back to, to New York, um, for whatever the meetings are or, Minneapolis, Arkansas, Atlanta, or kind of wherever we're going. Um, if I'm in Los Angeles, my typical day-to-day -day is, you know, I like to wake up, work out in the morning. Uh, I rented out uh, an office in downtown LA, which I got to say, really cool. And I wasn't expecting Los Angeles to have kind of a proper downtown area that reminded me of like Chicago or uh or New York. And so I like working out of that office downtown. Um, but so I can get in there and then typically it's, you know, because of the fact that we're doing the fundraise now, a lot of, a lot of the time is spent, um, 
on calls with with folks for that. But also I do, I would say, manage our really high level key accounts uh, still personally. We did hire a, a sales director um, who's been doing just a, a bang up job. But there's there are certain accounts that I still handhold myself and oversee. So really, it's just kind of a, you know, I'm a little bit in the wind in terms of uh, a jack of all trades doing whatever we need to do, whether it's a a podcast with Billy Draper or an event um, or, you know, meeting with a, a head buyer at a major retailer. <laughs> I like that you casually glaze over the uh, Minneapolis, Arkansas and Atlanta. Those are those are relatively specific cities. Yeah. You know. How about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot, tons of stuff going on in Arkansas. Oh, it's pretty cool, man. Have you never been? I actually haven't, but I just know it's it's pretty well known for for being host to one of the biggest retailers in the world. You know, um, you're supposed to let that just float by. It was okay. Let the people figure it out for themselves. <laughs> um. So what what is next for the business? Any new products coming? Sort of on the roadmap? Anything we should know about? Yeah, I mean, so we released uh, released two new flavors of our kind of flagship core product, that 32-ounce concentrate. Um, so it's a, a hazelnut mocha and a French vanilla. And so those are starting to roll out to retailers now. Um, I mentioned it earlier, but we did release uh, a ready-to-drink called the Little Easy, which is also rolling out now. And I would say that's kind of one of the beauties of owning our manufacturing plant is that you know, we can come up with an idea for a product and we can execute it fairly quickly. Um, you know, I think that it would be a lot scarier if we were releasing, say, a ready to drink and it was copact and we were sitting on 250,000 cases of this stuff and hoping that it sells well. Whereas, you know, because we're just running that bottling line all day, every day, you know, we can do short runs of this, release it through our DSD network, get it out there. Um, one kind of random thing that's cool that fell into our lap is we're running the whole coffee stations at the the Harry Potter show in the Lyric Theater in Times Square. So, I mean, they put a lot of money uh, behind this production and all the reviews for it have been amazing. So that's kind of just a fun little thing where anyone who goes and, and sees what, you know, should be one of the longer running shows on Broadway that we've seen recently is going to get, you know, exposed to uh, Grady's products left and right. Um, Cause we're also managing a hot coffee bar for them too. And then, you know, really it's just kind of expanding our footprint and, you know, I, the way I kind of describe what we've done is we try to have a product for every little niche within the category. So we have the ready to drink pop top, then we have the 16-ounce uh, concentrate bottle, which is almost the less spooky, lower price point entry into what a Grady's Coffee Concentrate is. Uh, then people will graduate to the 32-ounce. And then if they're power users, we now have a bag in a box, which is 42 cups. Um, and then, of course, we have kegs for you know on-premise. We do that through a company called Joyride. And then on the beanbag side, we have... You know, our, our beanbags are sold in traditional looking coffee canisters that play really nicely in retail. Then we came out with a thing called a cold brew kit, which has 12 of the beanbags in it, as opposed to the four that are in the can. And what's unique about that is the bag is a, a waterproof bag with a spigot. So you can actually brew the coffee directly in the bag you purchase it in if you choose. And then we have just, you know, kind of massive beanbags for, for on-premise for, uh, for anyone who wants to brew up big batches of this on site, whether it's a fast casual restaurant or something like that. And so, you know, we, we kind of have a product for everybody and it's just, that was, that was our way to fight back, I guess a little bit was, well, we don't have the deepest products. We don't have the most marketing dollars, but we do have a lot of innovation and, and we're pretty proud of being uh, really innovative within this space. Did they let you keep the Grady's branding on the Harry Potter show coffee or did you have to call it like, Expelliarmus coffee or something like that. <laughs> uh, no, they didn't approach us about that. Thankfully, um, yeah. So we get branding on that, and then we're also uh, we're gonna be sponsoring Summer Stage, the the free concert series in Central Park this summer too. Um, so that'll be fun because you'll get to see a lot of people uh, walking around, either because you know drinking a Grady's because they either don't drink or they had too much to drink or they're not allowed to drink that night 
or whatever. So it'll be fun to see to see people, you know, laying out on the lawn watching the concert, drinking some Grady's. So looking five, five or ten years down the road, what would you consider to be a you know a successful outcome for Grady's Cold Brew? Well, I mean, you know, I think that that's a pretty loaded question because I think there are a variety of outcomes that would would look very nice. And so, you know, I think that so say for instance, let's do, you know, a little role play. Say that we did take on, you know, an institutional investor. Well, it would have to be the right person who would resist the same urges to change the product the way that we've resisted them all along. And so you know, I mean, I remember even way back when, you know, we won a we won an award from uh, BevNet like six years ago, and the interesting thing was that in spite of winning the award, we were still getting a lot of feedback from industry experts telling us, "Oh, it'll never work. You need to put it in a plastic bottle. You need to change the branding so that it has a picture of a nice coffee ready made with a straw coming out of it on the front." And we're sitting there being like, "I don't think you guys get what we're trying to do here." And so, you know, it would it would have to be someone that would kind of respect the, I guess, the heritage of the company. Um, but I think that a really, you know, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but I think that if you want to look at a trajectory that we would emulate, it would have to be Brooklyn Brewery beyond all others, where, you know, they, they maintained their flagship, their presence in New York. They're definitely the beer of New York. Um, no offense to anyone that's just... I guess my opinion. Um, and so, you know, while they do do a lot of uh, brewing and manufacturing um, in different facilities, you know, I think that for us, it's really important to just maintain that foothold of, of being the New York City cold brew while also expanding nationally. And I think that's one of the things that we were really cognizant of when we first started was we saw these companies coming out with products and that was right when the the New York and the Brooklyn food scene was really popping off. And so everything was either, you know, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, this or Kings County, that, or it was kind of old timey, like, you know, McGillicuddy and sons jerky or whatever it would be. And so we really wanted to make sure that we made a product that while it's rooted in New York is something that appeals on a, on a national and on a global scale, which, um, you know, I think aspirationally we, we achieved hopefully, um, but yeah, so the company could be, you know, I think that it could be a monster if we baby it correctly. It's just kind of a matter of what are those steps that are in between now and the next five years going to look like. So that was a pretty vague answer. And I understand that uh, the answer is hopefully massive and wildly successful. And what's some advice you would give to, uh, to, to a founder just starting out in the CPG or in the consumer goods or in the food space? Uh, what's something that you wish someone had told you uh, back when you were getting started, when you were still working at Xerox and just trying to get Grady's off the ground? Well, I mean, the, when I left my job there, you know, a lot of the feedback was just, you know, I was I was 27 going on 28 when I left to start this. And so I think that that is, I think it's a good time to do something like that where, you know, you're not fresh out of school, you're not just sitting on a pile of debt thinking, okay, let's go further into debt. Um, Because, you know, I mean, it really, it was kind of a funny, it was a funny experience where, you know, I, I, as an adult planned to go broke, and I had my money saved up. And I knew that we weren't going to pay ourselves for, you know, two years. And so, you know, every piece of gum that I bought was just money out the door. And so, um, I think it was probably more stressful for those around me than myself because I, I figured that eventually we were going to get a loan or investment. Um, but I would say, you know, and it, it might sound indelicate, but you definitely want to have a good financial um, situation if you're going to start, uh, you know, a grassroots CPG company. Either that or just team up with someone um, initially who has a lot of experience in the space because, you know, that's one of the things that we talk a lot about is that, you know, there were a lot of times where these things that, you know, we'd be workshopping a problem that might take us three weeks to really come to a good, you know, conclusion on is something that someone might have already done eight times with eight different companies before. And so, you know, I'd say that you're gonna have to pour your life into it. And so, 
understanding that you're going to lose most of your, you know, your time to the company, don't exacerbate it by also just constantly being freaked out about money. Because that is just no way to wake up and fall asleep at night. You're going to lose your juice pretty easily on that one. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, I think that it's just you have to make sure that the product that you're making is going to be one of the best ones in category and that you're not just riding the wave of a category because kind of the nature of how those things go is that, you know, if, if you're launching a, a subpar product in a hot uh, category, eventually, you know, it's going to be a cream rise to the top thing. And that while you might generate some good short-term sales in the long term, you're probably not going to be a survivor within that space. So whatever category that you're in, make sure that you try to make a, a best of be, uh, breed category for it. And then lastly, I think that it's just got to be, you know, I think it's got to be in, you know, this is again, just the most generic answer ever, but I do think it's important that it's something that you're really passionate about. Um, you know, thankfully, with what we do and the, the company that we're are that we are, um, you know, I can I can kind of walk around proud of, of what we've done before, but I think it would be a little bit difficult if you were trying to disrupt the Q tip market or something. You know, like it's just it's gotta be a product right. that you that you interact with that that you can talk to your friends and family about. I mean the number of times that I will go to a good friend's house and open up the fridge and see a bottle of Grady's and forget that they like know me. And I'm like, Hey, look at that. And they're like, yeah, Dave. Yeah. What? Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, something that, that gets people jazzed up is, is key too. All right. So you have successfully completed the serious part of the interview. Now we're going to get into some fun ones. Uh, just, you know, for the record, what uh, if you could choose anyone to endorse Grady's cold brew? Who would you choose? Well, this is when I irritate most of the customer base, but I did grow up in Boston, so I think that if you had, say, Tom Brady endorsing the company, <laughs> that would be great. Um, or based on how the playoffs have been going, if you could get, you know, Jason Tatum on the Celtics, like before he's this megastar, I think that would be a really good person to bring in. Yeah, that seems possible. Yeah. Like I think it's Jason Tatum's people are listening to this. Let us, let us chat because. Yeah. Uh, you know, New York's own Grady's Cold Brew starring Tom Brady and Jason Tatum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that people give us so much attitude about that. It's so funny because, you know, Grady's from Missouri. I'm from Boston. Uh, we started a company in Brooklyn making New Orleans style coffee. It just really doesn't make doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, but, yeah, I would say that it would probably be, you know, one of those two guys. Um, you know, I think I'm, I'm more of a I'm more enamored by athletes than I am by celebrities. So I, you know, I think it would be. I think there's an opportunity there. Not a lot of coffee companies go after athletes. Well, also Grady's and Brady's are pretty similar. Oh my god! A little, I see the ad already. Brady's cold brew. Uh, Tom, Tom, we need. Can we take another cut? You keep saying Brady's cold brew. Just let him have it. Oh, that'll be a great commercial. Yeah, it'd be a great commercial. It would be a hell of an ad. Yeah. What? Okay. Next question. What would you do if you weren't making cold brew? I'd probably be living in Baja looking like Tom Hanks and Castaway tinkering away on like Jeep CJ sevens would probably be what I would be doing. Great lead into the next question. Any skills or hobbies we should know about? Um, I'm, I would say an Olympic level pro Kadima player pro Kadima that the wooden paddles with a rubber ball, the, the beach volleyball game. Um, I'm always looking for, for someone who will help us get to like 500 hits without, without a drop. Um, that's a funny thing too. My brother and I, you know, I have an older brother and we love playing that game. And I try, I just try a lot harder than he does when we play. And so it's funny because I was just dripping sweat playing this pro Kadima game at the beach. And he started give me a little bit of attitude. He was like, why do you keep running around so much? And I'm like, Hey Chris, if you hit the ball back uh, accurately, I won't have to run around so much. That's kind of how the teamwork of this game works. Um, so yeah, that's a random one, but 
Um, you know, I would say I built a, a Jeep in high school, which I think would be something that I would aspire to do again. It's not something you can do when you live in apartments in Brooklyn for 11 years. So now that I've got a little breathing room, I wouldn't mind kicking around to a few uh, junkyards like I did back then and scraping together some random parts and trying to make that thing work and try to not uh, have the engine fall out of the bottom of it. And then, you know, I'd say beyond that, I'm kind of a, you know, I'm like a little bit of a fitness junkie. So basically anything that I can do, um, you know, to, to switch things up so it's not just going and doing squats at the gym. Um, you can pretty easily get me to do. And lastly, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, Brady's Cold Brew. And, and that's Grady's Cold Brew.com, at Grady's Cold Brew on Instagram, and anything else. Where, where, where should people buy it? What are the national? I do have something I want to plug that's very random. Yeah, My yeah. brother's girlfriend, who we love, named Victoria Young, started a jewelry line called Victoria Young Jewelry. That I, as a guy who know absolutely nothing about jewelry, am honestly just constantly shocked at like the lines and the beauties of her uh, of her jewelry line. So check out Victoria Young Jewelry. Um, in addition to Brady's Colbert. Wow, the first totally selfless plug. I appreciate it. First on the pod. I mean, they've been dating forever. She's basically my sister. It's like, put a ring on it, man. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, come on. Come on, Dave's brother. What are you doing? Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know we booked this last minute, so I hugely, hugely appreciate it, Dave. And this was a great chat. And uh, congrats on all the success. And I, I look forward to continuing to see Grady's take up the aisle. Uh, Billy, thank you. I know that we've uh, we've known each other for a while. And so it's always uh, it always brings a smile to my face when I see your name come into the inbox. So thanks for thinking of us. Thank you, everyone, again so much for listening. Um, thank you, Dave, for coming on. That was so last minute. Uh, I hugely appreciate it. I owe you one. And uh, everyone go check out makingthebrand.co to hear all the episodes. And otherwise, I will talk to you next week. Thanks. Thanks.